How do you recover from a caregiver burnout? An interview with Iris Weisler. Are you a caregiver who feels exhausted, overwhelmed, and disconnected from others? You know, caregiving can be such a rewarding experience, but it can be demanding and emotionally challenging, and it can lead to burnout. Would you like to learn some practical strategies that can help you recover from caregiver burnout and improve your overall quality of life? Then stay tuned. Our guest today, Iris Weschler, will share some practical tips on how do you recover from a caregiver burnout. You're watching Happy and Healthy Mind program, episode 112. And Iris Weschler has been a medical social worker for over 40 years. She is an award-winning author of the books, Role Reversal, How to Take Care of Yourself and Your Aging Parents, and Riding the Infertility Roller Coaster, a guide to educate and inspire. Additionally, she is a regular contributor to choosingtherapy.com, where she writes articles on mental health and medical topics. And I'm your host, Dr. Rosina Lakani. I help compassionate high achievers achieve more, earn more, and make the impact they're meant to make without burnout or losing their health or career. I'm an executive coach, a corporate speaker, and an integrative psychiatrist. I believe that your mind is the software that runs the hardware of your brain and your body. Therefore, I share practical tips for your mental fitness here. If you need specific medical advice, please consult your healthcare professional. But if you find this content helpful, then join our mission of eradicating preventable suffering by liking, subscribing, and sharing so more people can live and perform at their best with hope, health, and happiness. All right, so let's learn from our guest. So, Aries, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thank you. So tell us, how did this topic become important in your life? It became important to me because I was a medical social worker on a, a physical medicine and rehabilitation unit. And that meant all of my patients there had come in because they had catastrophic medical problems. Mm -hmm. So they had burns, they had amputations, they had strokes neurological problems and head injuries, very serious. Mm -hmm. And their lives changed in a second overnight. Right. And I, I worked with all of my patients and their families. And what I saw was how incredibly devastating it was for family members. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to begin, let alone dealing with the shock of the illness. Right. There's a lot of grief and loss that comes in those situations. You see a person you love, and you want to take care of them, you want to help them, but you're also feeling the feelings of, of someone who witnesses someone they love changing and, and, and ill, seriously ill. And so really tough in those moments to know what to do. Mm -hmm. What kind of symptoms would you notice in these people when they are having this burnout? A caregiver symptoms signals uh, for burnout, and it's really important to pay attention to your body and your mind, as, as you said in the intro. Emotions that happen are depression, frustration, feelings of hopelessness and helplessness, anxiety about the future. Physical symptoms that are really symptoms of stress include headaches and body aches. Lots of people have digestive issues where their their gut, that's where a lot of our stress is. Right. And, and so like they start having diarrhea or nausea. Or right. And then also behavioral symptoms happen too when you're 
and under that stress. And when you are burned out, you become more irritable, you become more angry, you become more frustrated. And so you, you might notice behavioral changes. And then of course, other things to look for are, I know when I was a caregiver, it was really hard to sleep because you're waiting for that phone to ring or for some, some emergency to come up that you needed to help. So loss of sleep is a really common problem. And the other issue for caregivers is when you're, when you're focused on taking care of someone else, you don't take care of yourself. And so even you were noticing all these problems in these families. Yes. It kind yes. of became really important for you. Yes. And you'll kind of go through some of the tips that you're going to share later. But tell me what changes you observe when people start applying some of these tools that you're going to teach us today. Did their, you know, the, the problem stays, their loved one is still having the medical problem or, or difficulties. What changes do they notice in their life if they apply some of the tools that you're going to teach us? Well, I think one of the things that happens is initially they feel totally alone and overwhelmed. And so once they realize that they're not alone, that there is help available, that immediately lowers the temperature in terms of stress. And the other thing, and, and that was my primary job, was to help educate them. So I think if we know what to expect, we can help prepare ourselves. And so I think that it, it's a whole new world when you're dealing with this overwhelming medical problem. But mm -hmm. once, once they start getting information, again, the anxiety subsides. And so th those were really important things. And I also was an advocate for them. I helped them ask questions of the medical team so mm -hmm. that they had information. And that was really useful too for them too. I, I saw that as a way to lessen the stress. So did you notice them kind of less emotionally charged? Were they less irritable? Were they able to sleep better? What kind of improvements did you notice in them? Yes, I'd say they were sleeping better. They, I continued to give them the message to take care of themselves and gave them permission to do that. And so that, that really helped. Sometimes they didn't need to be there every day because I could see that if they were, the stress would get greater. So I gave them permission and helped them give themselves permission to take time off to nurture and take care of themselves. And that also helped. Wonderful. So why don't we jump into some of the tools that, you know, you, it seems like you're already giving us a lot of tools uh, <laughs> that I'm hearing. So maybe we can kind of organize the tips for if one of the audience member is being a caregiver, what are some of the things they should do to both prevent the burnout or if there's a caregiver who is feeling the burnout, what are like, you know, one, two, three things that they can do yeah. to be able to come out of that burnout? Okay. Well, I think one of the biggest mistakes that caregivers make is they, they don't have the caregiver conversation until they're in the middle of a crisis. So one of the things I always recommend is that people be proactive, mm -hmm. that they have a conversation. If, for example, you're taking care of a parent or you know that that will happen while your parents are healthy or your, your partner or spouse is healthy sitting down and having a conversation coming from a place of love where you say, I really love you. I care about you. I want to talk to you about what we can do to help you live as long and healthy life as possible and what role I can play in that. And let me tell you that it, that's a really tough conversation to have because we have to think about our mortality and the mortality about the person we're talking with. But 
it takes away so much stress and 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 it's the greatest gift a parent can give their adult child my mother became ill when she was 55 she had cancer and she was very young and we didn't have that conversation and then when we were ready to have the conversation her cancer returned and it metastasized to her brain and so we had no she wasn't thinking clearly so we had no idea what she wanted us to do and for me, I was her primary caregiver. It was, it was so hard to try to guess about what she wanted to do. And I was so regretful that we didn't have that conversation sooner. So when my dad got older after that, we did have that conversation. And when he got ill, I could know what decisions he wanted to, me to make. And I felt very at peace with the choices I made because I knew they were his choices. Before we go into the second point, Lena, I'm kind of trying to see what questions people would be having. So let's say I have a parent and my parent-in-law who are kind of elderly. And so I'm thinking, okay, what conversation am I going to have? How am I going to start? What am I going to say? So can, can you walk us through? Sure, sure. I would start with saying what I just said. That is, I've been thinking about this, or I had a friend whose parent got sick, and it got me thinking about us. And, and the point of it is you want to come from a place of collaboration, not confrontation. So you come from a place of love and caring. And you, you say, I know you're really healthy now, but as you get older, I want to know what you want to do. Do you want to stay in, in your home now, even if you have medical problems or if you're not able to walk? Do you want family members to be people to help you or would you be willing to have someone come in, a healthcare professional? Would you be okay with that? You got If you got too sick to stay at home, would you be okay with us helping you find a good place to go, like an assisted living program? And, and so you, you put things out there. That's not to say that everything's going to be resolved in that first conversation, but it's a starting point and you open the door and then down the road, people may be more willing to talk about it. And the other aspect of that conversation is, and this is a really hard part, if you're going to be helping someone and you are their caregiver, you need to understand what their insurance is. You need to understand their finances because you need to know that information to, to know what's available in terms of resources if additional help is needed or additional care. So that's really important. And the other piece of it is healthcare directives, people making choices about People may have heard of living wills, which is a form that you sign saying, this is what I want done if I'm not able to communicate my wishes. And having, they're called advanced directives. And having those conversations is really important too. For example, someone might or might not want to be on a ventilator, those kinds of things. And so having those conversations and having those, those documents in place is, is again, another huge gift. So that, those are some of the things I would start. And if, it, if it's, it seems like it's too hard to talk about, then you just put it away for now and then you try to find another time and then you reference it and say, remember when I was talking about this, I noticed that you're having some trouble with your balance or you're having some trouble walking and I'd really like to revisit that because I want to know the best ways to help you. Yeah, and I can kind of just even imagine if I start talking about this to one of our, one of our relatives, you know, the first thing that would come is, so are you trying to put me in the in a assisted living or nursing home? And and let's say if they say, oh, I never want to be in a nursing home, but then you are in a situation where you can't take care of them, then what do you do if you know that they never want to be in a nursing home? 
Well, I would say I would say this if they said that to me, I would say no. My goal is not to put you in a nursing home right now. My goal is to find out what your wishes are, and I would say that that I'll be working together with you and your doctor and the other healthcare professionals involved to figure out what's the best thing for you. But I want to do as much as I can to honor your goals and your wishes. I'm you're, I'm not making promises that way because none of us know what the future holds. Right, right. But I'm letting them know that I hear what they're saying. I know that what they're afraid of, and I understand that. And I I will try to respect their wishes as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Have you known anybody who would say, "Yeah, put me in the nursing home if I'm sick"? Yes, I have. Yeah, I have. Yeah, because I would assume that everybody wants to stay in their home. Well. Surprisingly, not necessarily, because a lot of people's homes are not set up for them to move around. If you're in a wheelchair and you're in an older home, the doors aren't going to be wide enough. If your bedroom and bathroom are upstairs and you can't get up the steps, those are issues. And so sometimes people do know what's best. My, my mother-in-law right now, she's 90, and years ago she decided to go into assisted living because she said that she knew that the house was too large and she couldn't take care of it. So... She's in an apartment and totally a lovely apartment and a place. But if she gets sick or, or she does have issues, there's staff there to help. And there's a floor she can go to if she, if she does decline um, mentally or physically. And those, that was all her, her choice and my father-in-law. So, and that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. I did that with my father. My father, well, actually, he decided it was too much for him to be in the house. And he said, OK, I'd like to you to help me find a place. And so what you do is you make them a part of that 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 choice so mm -hmm. i i narrowed it down to three places and my father went with me to the three places he told me what was most important and his priorities were food he wanted the food to be good he wanted an, a nice apartment and exercise was really important so he wanted to make sure there was like a a little gym there and then he's a soldier and so i i arranged for him to meet some of the other veterans that were living there that's wonderful. Yeah, so it may be a good idea for you to kind of explain for people who may who may not know the difference between assisted living and nursing home. Sure. So assisted living can be a, an independent apartment where there's nothing medical there except there there usually is like a pull cord. So if you fall or you have trouble, you can you can ask for help, but it's a full apartment with bedrooms and a kitchen and a bathroom and the whole the whole thing. And they they also have dining rooms where people can go and eat if they choose to do that. There's nursing staff available there that uh, you can check with. And there's also oftentimes there's a physical therapist or an occupational therapist there, too, that if the residents need help, um, they can get it. And, and then assisted living programs generally have higher skilled floors where there's more staff available to help people um, depending on what their needs are. Nursing, nursing homes have a, a higher skilled health professional, more skilled health professionals available. Those for people that need more help and nurses there, they have doctors that come regularly to visit and they have nurses aides that will come and they, that's for people that need more help with their day-to-day -day care needs or have medical problems that are causing some health instability where they need to be monitored more frequently. There's usually an activities therapist there too. So they, socialization is a huge important part of quality of life. So they have opportunities for people to meet other people. So basically assist, assisted living is actually independent living with some assistance available versus yes. nursing home is like in you know, a full care 
uh, facility. 24-hour so, medical and nursing care for the skilled wonderful. nursing facility. Wonderful. So let's kind of jump on to, okay, so we have had the conversation. What's the other thing they can do? 60% of caregivers are women, and women are terrible at taking care of themselves, and they're also terrible at saying no. Women, we, t we tend to focus on caring for other people. It's in our nature. And so one of the things I would say is that caregivers need to learn how to say no when they're asked to do things that they can't do. It's really important to prevent burnout. The other thing I would say is as a caregiver, what you want to do, uh, or potential caregivers, to build a support network to identify people that can be available to help. There's a whole lot of tasks that are involved in caregiving and not all of them are physically being there to take care of the person. So you identify people in your family or friends or neighbors or people in your church or whoever that can do those tasks. And they don't all have to physically be close either. We live in a world where families are spread out. And so, for example, in, in my case, my sister lives in England. And when my father got sick, she wanted to help. So she offered financial support. And my brother came in for respite care. My sister and I, we, we were burnt out. And my brother came in to, to be with my father to give us a break. So that's the other piece of, of what my recommendations would be is to put together a respite care plan. And respite care basically means giving the caregiver a break. And that can mean having a healthcare professional in, it could be having a family member there, it could be going to a, a adult daycare program where people can go. And it can also, you can go to skilled nursing facilities for a, a short time to give people respite care too. So having a backup plan is really important too. The other thing that comes with caregiving, I think, is guilt. We feel guilty. That's what I was going to say. You know, <laughs> I, have, I have a patient who has like a you know, 92-year-old mother and she feels guilty. She's having such hard time, you know, taking care of herself or making to her own doctor's appointment. She gets exhausted. But, you know, she has very high level of guilt if she has to say no, or she, even if she has to ask for help. Like, you know, even when she had to ask for her brother or sister to help, she felt extreme guilt that as if like, you know, she's doing something bad asking for help. So, yeah. How do you deal with that? Um, I think the way to deal with that, and that's a really common problem, is self-expectations and creating self-expectations that are real. If you're a, a wife and a mother and you have a job and you're a parent, no one can do all of those jobs. And so you have to learn to be able to say no without feeling guilt. And another thing you do is you need to be able to say to yourself, is there someone else that can do a better job at this than I can? because you, your goal is to help get the best possible care for the, the loved one that you're, you're watching. And particularly if you're burnt out, you get very tired, physically tired, you get irritable, you may not be the best person to come in there every day. So reframing the, the notion of rather than it being a selfish thing, it's, it's helping the person that you're caring for by doing that. I think that's, that's really important. The other thing I would say is you need to carve out time for yourself a place where you can go to get a break, to spend time with people that you love and that you trust and that you can have a honest, candid conversation about how you're feeling and how you're doing. Those moments, they nourish your spirit, they nourish your body, and they nourish your mind. And it's super important to do that. 
even if it's going in the bathroom and turning on a warm bath and you're in the bathtub for 15 minutes, whatever you can do, but it's important to carve out those moments. I think that's really important. The other thing I would say is caregiving can be a really intimate, privileged time too. And if you can incorporate fun things to do when you're a caregiver, that makes it a really special time for you as the caregiver and, and for the person that's being cared for. And what I mean by that is, for example, people love music. And so playing music that the person you're taking care of loves. I took care of a friend of ours who was dying. And every day, the first time I went in his apartment, I would let him choose the music and we would sit and we would sing to the music. Or reminiscing is a wonderful thing for people who you're taking care of who have memory issues, showing them Photographs is a really wonderful thing to do. And those old memories are easier to pull out and access. Uh, watching a favorite movie that you know was with your, that your person you're taking care of might enjoy. If it's a nice day, going out in the garden or going for a walk, even if they're in a wheelchair, you can still take them out. Those kinds of things can create really special and memorable moments. And it, it also energizes the caregiver too, because you're doing things that are, you're creating special memories and moments and it makes the caregiving experience more enjoyable for everybody. Yeah, I remember when my mother-in-law was kind of frail and visited like doing some beadwork and some puzzles and wooden activity. It really helped to both bond with the family as well as stimulate the, the person's brain so then it can function at the best. Yeah, that's one important thing because you know if you are if somebody is sick or like you know getting bedridden or not being able to be as active as they used to, you know the the cells that are not utilized they start kind of dying. So kind of keeping the mind uh, and the brain active and as much as physically also active because a lot of times even though the person may not be able to do a full fledged you know yoga or or aerobic exercise, but then there's so much, you know, movement, simple movement that could be done that would keep the joints moving to keep the muscles, you know, active and keep the brain active. So doing activities, both physical and mental, as much as possible can help both the caregivers so they're not getting bored and engage and bond as well as the person who is being cared for. That's, those are huge, huge moments, and it's really important. I would say, too, um, mindfulness activities are great for the caregiver and the person that needs the care. Even something as simple as taking a moment and doing deep breathing together, if a person physically can't do that much, we can all practice breathing or just closing our eyes and, and just trying to meditate or just trying to relax. It brings down the blood pressure. It gets oxygen to the brain and through the body. And those are all really simple things, but again, um, it, it sort of slows things down and it, it's something you can do together. And, and, it, and those are really important tasks to do. And, and you mentioned um, keeping the mind in shape, doing things like jigsaw puzzles or crossword puzzles. My father always had a crossword puzzle in his pocket wherever he was and he would pull it out and he would do it or we would do it together and he loved it and it was, at the end of the day, he could look at that puzzle and say, I did this. It was an achievement. And it really helps the brain to do those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. My my father-in-law loves playing Sudoku. So he's like, oh, yeah. he spends hours playing Sudoku on his phone and keeps his mind sharp as well as helps him spend time joyfully instead of feeling 
bored with that time. And I would say another really important thing is, and, and that research shows over and over, as, as you well know, socialization is huge. That's one of the, the things that keeps us alive longer and, and gives quality to our lives. So even if, if you're taking care of someone that physically can't get out of the house or mobility is an issue, having people come over or making sure that, that there is some kind of opportunities for socialization. And that doesn't mean having a big party with a lot of people because that can be overwhelming and be hard to follow conversation. But um, having one or two people come over just to spend time together, it lifts the spirit. It, it really is great. And my father loved that when we did that for him. And I think that's another thing that, and it also helps the caregivers too, because it, it sort of gives them a, a chance to sort of step back and let someone come in and they can, and they can see, be a part of the visit and a part of the conversation. And that can be a real enjoyable experience for them too. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I think I have noticed is that not only the caregiver may forget about taking care of themselves, but they themselves are going through the grief process, like, you know, anticipating the loss. And maybe they are also not there emotionally to even think that they should take care of themselves. So, so what do you suggest to them, somebody who is, like you said, like, you know, your, your mom was sick, very young, it was not expected. Suddenly you were the caregiver. How did you cope with that sudden grief and shock? Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Dr. Rosina. What you're describing is anticipatory grief. And that's when you're, you're expecting someone to get ill and perhaps die. And, and for caregivers, there's two different kinds of grief. One is you're grieving the loss of the person you knew and loved. You've seen them changing physically. You're seeing them changing mentally. And you're also for adult children taking care of their parents, there's that role reversal where all of a sudden the person that took care of you all of your life, you're taking care of them. And that's really hard emotionally. And then there's the second moment of grief. And that's when the person actually dies. So in a sense, you lose them twice. And it's really important to understand that and acknowledge that. And I think uh, in terms of coping with it, I, I think that talking with others is really important. A lot of people find that having counseling or therapy helps with that too, because it's such an enormous loss. And there's so much that goes in, there may be issues that were never resolved, and you're losing the person that you love. And so therapy can be really important. And the other thing that's really great are, are support groups. And that can be done if you can't get out, you can go online at any time and you can find um, grief support groups. Or if, if your loved one, for example, has Alzheimer's disease, you can go to a chat room where there's a group with other people that are whose loved ones have Alzheimer's disease. And there's great comfort talking with other people who are going through what you're going through. Because sometimes we feel like we're going crazy, that we're feeling emotions that no one else feels. And there's great comfort in knowing that other people are experiencing the same things that you are. And the other piece of that is too, they may have ideas and tips and, and things that they've tried that work that they can share. And you can share things that may have worked for you. And so it's a, it's kind of a helping each other relationship. And that can be really powerful too. And that's another way to deal. And that it would also be the time that would be a little break from the caregiving. Yes, yes. When you do that, it's kind of, although you're, you're doing favor to both yourself 
because you have that break as well as to your loved one, because then you would be better caregiver. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot and of people may not think that, you know, the support group may be helpful and they may have some preconceived notion that, oh, it's just a waste of time. What would you say to those people? I would say certainly important to try it. It's it's not, I don't believe it's a waste of time. And, and many of the people that I've worked with have found it in, tremendously helpful and they've formed relationships and friendships that have stayed with them for life. They've stayed with them for a very long time. And some people are really reluctant to, to be in a room with other people or share their, their feelings. And that's why for those people, being online might be a little safer way of doing it. You can be in a chat room and you can be in a group online, which might make you feel a little more comfortable. And if you don't like it, you can always leave the group. So, so that's another thing where you have a little more control about how much you participate or what you do or you don't do. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, I didn't realize we were having so much fun. We were almost <laughs> out of time. <laughs> so can you give us kind of your best advice, a take-home message for our audience? Take-home message is pay attention to your body and your mind. And when you start feeling the symptoms we talked about earlier, Hopefully it doesn't get to that point, act before those things happen. But if they do pay immediate attention, because if you can't take care of yourself and, and you get physically or emotionally drained, then you can't be a good caregiver. And I would say the other thing is to come to a place where you're able to do things to help yourself as a caregiver, as well as the loved one that you're taking care of. And that might mean sometimes being able to say, I, I can't do it, but I, I want to find someone that can and, and to figure out a way to do that without feeling guilty. Wonderful, wonderful. Take care of yourself so you can continue to take care of others on a long-term basis. Absolutely. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So if people want to learn more about your work and benefit from your wisdom, how can they reach you? The best way to reach me is I have an author a page, an author page, and it's I W A I C H L E R W P E N G I N E. That's Iris I Weichler WP Engine.com. And I have, they can write me directly there. I have all kinds of articles and videos and lots of information about caregiving there. And in addition, I have a, a Facebook page and a Twitter page that I post articles on every day, Monday through Friday, with all kinds of information and resources for caregivers. And that Facebook page is www.facebook, F-A-C-E-B-O-O-K.com forward slash role reversal. That's R-O-L-E, capital R-E-V-E-R-S-A-L, one. And that has articles. And my Twitter page is Twitter. T-W-I-T-T-E-R.com slash Iris, I-R-I-S, Weichler, W-A-I-C-H-L-E-R. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for the gift that you're going to share with our audience. Can you kind of tell us in a sentence or two what they would get in this yes. gift you are going to share? I think one of the hardest parts about being a caregiver is when a lot of people around you have all these opinions about what you're doing and why it's not right or it's not good. <laughs> and so the so criticism. I, the criticism, yes. And so I, I'm going to um, share with them how to, how to cope with the criticism. Wonderful, wonderful. And if you want to get this gift, please head on to our website. 
happyandhealthymind.com and click that resources button and you'll be able to download this great resource and learn how to cope with caregiver criticism and other resources shared by other guests in our program. And if you would like us to send you a text reminder, please send a text joyful, J-O-Y-F-U-L, to the number 38470, and we'd be happy to send you the links for reminders and resources. And so let me leave you on this note. Every day is a new day, a new opportunity to make different decisions. What is one thing that you are going to change today? If you are in a caregiver role already, what is one thing you are going to do to take care of yourself so you can continue to be a good caregiver on a long-term basis? And if you are not yet, what kind of conversation you are going to initiate with your caregiver so that you are proactive and be ready or prepared when and if the circumstances start in your life. So that note, stay safe, happy and healthy. Until next time, Dr. Rosina. And thank you, Iris, for joining us today. Thank you.